Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I, uh, in these times where what we need is chicken soup or whatever your vegan equivalent of that or your cultural equivalent to that is, I thought I would bring my very own chicken soup for the soul, Seth Godin, everybody's favorite moment guest and uh, one of my dearest friends back to uh, give us some comfort and challenge us and do all the things that Seth does. Uh, Seth Godin, thanks for being here on my very first time recording a podcast far away by myself, like we're not in the same room. We are not in the same room, but I feel like we are. In fact, even when we're not talking, I feel like we are. No, it's true. We uh, think of one another. I mean, this it, it, it is true. It's a, a very lucky thing to have friends that you can connect with in this time. But I'm not going to assume that the person listening has friends near them or is easily able to talk to people. And Seth, you're one of the most self-sufficient people I've ever met. That doesn't mean you don't want, need, uh, engage in real friendships, but it, it does mean that you've found a way to construct um, an idea of yourself so that you can manage your own state and your own self. Can Can you talk a little bit about the process of doing that, of the kind of self-sufficiency that that uh, that we can all develop for ourselves and use in this time. Well, um, I think that you are exaggerating dramatically, but let me try to uh, parse it slightly differently, which is good. Panic is a hobby, and it's important to acknowledge that it is a hobby. Hobby in the sense that it doesn't produce useful outcomes that it's something that we can choose to do or not do based on how we tell ourselves a story. One of the things that I like to point out to people when I'm trying to be uh, the worst person at a cocktail party is that there is a very significant chance that a large asteroid is going to hit the planet. And almost nobody is spending any time panicking about it, even though it would be productive to spend some time doing something about it, but it's not the thing that everyone is talking about. So I want to begin this conversation by saying that we are in the middle of a worldwide tragedy, that people who don't deserve the illness that is going to afflict them are going to get ill, and some of them are going to pass away. I am not minimizing any of that. It doesn't pay to minimize it. But at the same time, if we choose to panic or not panic, that can be a choice. And if you're getting solace from panic, well, then please continue. But I don't think I'm as self-sufficient as you might say, but I am working hard all the time to tell myself a story to avoid going to a place of panic because I don't find that I get any satisfaction from that. That makes sense uh, to me. I do think you, though, have put practices in place to stoke. So let's say you don't want to think of yourself as self-sufficient the same way I do. Then the fact that there's a gap between where you'd like to be in that area and where you are does mean that you work at it. Can you just talk a little bit about how you personally work at it? Disciplining your mind to be self-sufficient. So I think it's more interesting to talk about resilience 
because sure. resilience means well I, I, when you pinged me earlier today i was so thrilled that we could talk and i was talking to myself about some of the things that might be helpful here's one seasickness sailors don't get seasick now it might be because people who are inclined to seasickness don't become sailors but it could also be because sailors accept the fact that the sea isn't flat and that someone who's not good at that, who's not familiar with it, has a brain that's trying to make everything okay, trying to make everything like it is on land. And if you get on a boat and try to make, through the force of will, the boat to be calm, you're going to make your seasickness dramatically worse. And so resilience begins with the idea of accepting the fact that the sun sets every night and it's going to get dark, beginning with the fact that we know we're going to die, all of us, one day, that yes. nothing that we build in our organization is going to last forever. Western Union was going to last forever. Yahoo was going to be the center of the internet forever. These are all examples of the impermanence of the world, and yet we have built a culture where the foundation of it is to seek permanence as opposed to seek resilience. And so the reason that 400 million rolls of toilet paper got sold last week was that people were looking for a talisman. They were looking for an animal sacrifice. They were looking for a way to insulate themselves from a world that wasn't the way they expected it to be. And we do these actions because we're trying to get things back to the way they're supposed to be. Yes, brilliant and true. There's a lot there. So for sure, the idea that we always need reassurance, you know, anyone who's ever wrestled with anxiety knows that in fact, you can't uh, make it dissipate by trying to get some external force to tell you that everything's okay. You ask, is everything okay? They say, yeah, it looks like it's going to be okay. 98% it should be okay. You go for a second. Oh, that's great. Uh, and then you go, wait, they said 98%? Sorry, did you say? And what it in fact does is it makes you more anxious, right? It makes you more uh, needing satisfaction. So yes, it's really important to say, this is, oh, we're on a, we're going to be on a ship. That ship is going to rock to and fro. Uh, to try to fight that, to try to white knuckle that is going to cause more pain than to accept it and go with it. But I, I want to go with this one idea again, because I, I, I think I didn't say it cleanly enough. Let's take the word self-sufficient. Let's take that expression away. But let's talk about capability for a second. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm, as I'm hearing from people and talking to people uh, online, what I feel is people wondering if they have the capability to get through this. And I'm wondering if you, and I know you do because you talk to people every day and you know all, your books and your daily blog and um, what I'm wondering about is how can people help themselves feel a bit more capable each day? You know, I like to talk about if you want to stoke your creativity, you, there's things you can do in 20 minutes a day, a half hour a day. Can you just talk about what people can do to give themselves a sense of how capable they actually are at getting through this, both practically and emotionally? Because yes, panic. Uh, but but preparation is useful or uh, uh, understanding where you actually are and what you can actually do versus uh, where you're afraid you are and what you're afraid you can't do. 
So one of the best sources of resilience turns out to not be selfish fear. It turns out to right. be generous leadership. And yes. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, home of the lake effect snowstorm. Uh, there have been days when I was growing up where we would get between two and three feet of snow at a time in one day. And then the question is, what should you do after that? Well, if you go to your elderly neighbor's house and shovel their walk, it is one of the best things you could possibly do because you get the benefit yes. of being part of the community. You get the benefit of knowing that not only are you able to survive today, but you're thriving enough to be contributing. And the sense of sufficiency is really important because anyone who's listening to this has an electronic device in their hand that is connecting them to the entire world. They have access to things that were miracles just 50 years ago. But if we're telling ourselves a story that we're drowning, it's harder to be sufficient, to feel sufficient. And so when we seek to adopt generous leadership, so I'll use an example. Brian has a podcast. He's putting this podcast into the world, not to get more listeners, but because he can. And that idea of doing it because we can helps reinforce in our head the fact that we're going to be able to get to the next level. Now, it's also important, as we're recording this in March 2020, to remember that this is going to be a long slog, but it's a slog. It's not like World War I or World War II, where at any minute something was going to come out of the sky and blow up your house. It's a slog. And as a result, we have to hunker down and say, what kind of person do I want to be for the next yes. two weeks or four weeks or six weeks? Because the sooner you start modeling that behavior, the sooner you will believe it. Well, that's a very practical thing to do, which is if you're listening to this, go grab a pen. I find it's useful to do these things in pen, but you can also do it on the computer. And it's not a bad idea to actually write out what would the best version of me be doing right now? What would the best version of me be doing with my time during this period? What would the best version of me be look like at the end of this time? And that doesn't mean, because I wanted to ask you about this too, Seth, that doesn't mean, and I'm, I'm when I say stuff like that, I know that can add pressure. So this isn't to add pressure, but so, so how would you balance that? I actually wrote you this morning that I wanted to talk about this uh, because I've been thinking a lot about it. Like the way it manifests for me personally is I think, well, I can actually use this time. We'll finish the remaining billion scripts uh, or certainly get really far in outlining them. And then, well, I, I can finish this book that you know, Seth, I've been working on. And then the second I said that, I thought, well, I'm setting myself up to feel like a failure at the end of each day if I make that demand on myself. So how do you balance this idea of what we can, should try to accomplish, what we can accomplish, and managing the way we feel about ourselves? Well, you said something a few times in previous episodes about fuel and fuel that burns clean or not. So I want to yes. talk about that in the, in the sense of resilience and also in the sense of leadership. So I was really lucky. I was in the right place at the right time during the internet boom. And I know a whole bunch of people 
who hit an internet jackpot as entrepreneurs, as people who were adjacent to entrepreneurs. And then the question is, what do you do after that? And some of them signed up for bigger swings of the bat. They signed up to take bigger risks. They figured out how to put everything on the line, whether it was in real estate or another company or whatever it was. Because without that feeling that it was all on the line, they didn't feel alive. And other right. people said, I don't have to play a game where if I lose the game, I'm out. I could play a game using the resources I have where I get to keep playing a game. And the question is, in that instance, where is your fuel coming from? What is driving you forward? So if you think about uh, a doctor in the emergency room, and my heart goes out to all of these medical professionals who are putting themselves through the ringer. This is what they signed up for a long time ago. They don't wish for it to happen, but they are ready for it to happen. Yes. How many patients should you help today? Well, if your model is, I will help every patient until I am unconscious, then tomorrow we're all going to lose because you're going to have to figure out how to be able to pace yourself to do the work you set out to do. Now, this is different than not putting yourself under pressure because it feels to me like right now in a moment of pessimism and disarray, putting ourselves under pressure to be more productively generous is exactly what we need to do. To say, well, yeah, I could reward myself with the treat of watching two hours of uh, old TV tonight or something, or I could spend two hours tutoring a kid in East Harlem in Zoom. Which should I do? Well, yes. that contribution is going to get you out of your head. And getting out of your own head because you made something better for somebody else, what a treat, what an opportunity to be able to move things forward. Now, some people aren't emotionally wired to be connecting to strangers, to be showing up in that way. Fine, go learn something new. Instead of watching old Seinfeld episodes on YouTube, go watch something on YouTube about things you have no idea about and learn something. Learn some empathy, learn some technology, learn how to install something and make it work on your computer. All of these things are available to us because we're on spring break and we're healthy, right? The people who are fighting for their lives, they have the best excuse. But for the rest of us, the question is what pressure will we put ourselves under that is useful fuel to get us to the person we want to be? Yeah, because this sense of progress that will come from trying to learn something new, from contributing, it it actually, um, it, it is fuel, Seth. It, it is also the difference between thin and thick pleasure, which I've been thinking a lot about. I've been thinking a lot that. about those terms. Yeah. yeah. I've been thinking a lot about thin pleasure. The problem with it is it just doesn't take up enough space. And so surrounding it, uh, and these are kind of immediate gratification things, as you say, watching the wrong television show. I mean, Billions gives a very thick pleasure, but generally- uh, oh, watching... Billions is a category unto itself, and I'm assuming all of our listeners have already seen yeah, every episode. That's correct. That's worth taking the time to do. But no, in, in real terms, these thin pleasures, the problem is all sorts of stuff can fill in around them. But a thick pleasure like contribution, like getting better at something useful, that 
uh, ends up filling uh, the space in a way that for a period of time prevents the anxiety from seeping in or the panic from seeping in. And it leads to growth, which then makes you stronger. And so I agree with you that uh, taking s taking uh, productive steps will be much more useful now even than um, it usually is. And I'm, I'm thinking a lot about it. You know, uh, by way of example, I, I put out on uh, online yesterday, I said, uh, look, I'll do one guest podcast appearance a day as long as this lasts. And I said on Twitter, just email me at the moment, bkgmail.com. Ask me to come on your podcast. I will schedule one a day and I'll knock them all out. If that'll help you, if that'll help your listeners. And look, part of me, as we do when we think we can help feel, you know, when you go knock on that door to uh, see if someone wants you to shovel their driveway, sometimes that might feel like uh, in a way you're doing it to make yourself feel good. But when I said that yesterday, all these people were like, we're, thanked me for doing it. They they want that content. They they want that kind of connection. And so all of us, I think, can find some way to uh, do something uh, like that. Seth, for the person who's for whom it's been mostly irregular. They've been working sort of regular hours as many people, most of us have to. They've been in a routine and now they find themselves without their routine. Do you have any tips for how to start developing a routine, how to start thinking about organizing uh, your day so that you don't feel lost? Yeah, I love this topic. So um, we are launching in the next day or two a free co-working space online. So if you go to akimbo.com, you can find the link to it at the top when it goes live. Uh, no pitches, nothing for sale. It's just a place to find the others. Included will be uh, Zoom rooms where you can just be on camera typing and working, not talking, surrounded by other people who are on camera typing and working and not talking, as well as places to have a water cooler conversation or whatever. Because social isolation without any interaction with other people is not something that is conducive for most of us to have a good day. So we built that because I've been working on my own, working uh, from home since 1986. And uh, I learned a lot of lessons along the way, particularly during times that are fraught, because you want the world to give you a gig. You want the world to say yes to something and you're sitting there by yourself and you don't have any leverage to make a change happen. That causes short-term thinking. It causes resistance. It causes a lot of yeah. downsides. So a few boundaries, a few thoughts. Number one is you need to organize something. And so we're organizing something at Akimbo, but organize something without us. Figure out how to reach out to eight colleagues and say every day from 12 to 12.30, we're going to eat lunch together on Zoom. And then just do it. Because if you organize, you won't get left out because you're the organizer. And it's possible now for free for anybody who has this magical machine in their pocket to do something like that. The second thing that I would suggest is to realize that you have saved a bunch of time with your commute, saved a bunch of time without having to uh, primp and shave and all that other stuff. How will you choose to invest that time? 
because the wrong answer is to work at 70% pace for 20% longer. That's not going to help you. That you can actually be extraordinarily productive when no one's interrupting you, when you're not tempted to get up and walk around and check out what's going on three doors down. So be productive and then turn it off. And turning it off is so important. You will not win any prizes for being online more than other people over the next two weeks. The way you will win prizes, the way you'll be proud of your work is if you do something that scares you. So what does that mean? Well, when was the last time you updated your company's uh, M&A or business plan? When was the last time you figured out who are the four organizations you should be partnering with and done deep research on who the right people are and what they will need to see when all of this ends up? Or when was the last time, if you're a personal investor, you looked at the four companies that you care the most about, did deep research and figured out their prospects? I mean, I can go on and on, but we don't do those things in our daily life because we want everything to be normal. And now that you've got this moment where it's not normal, you can say, all right, every day from three o'clock to four o'clock, I'm going to start finishing my day by doing a deep dive and sprint into an area I'm afraid of. You're doing it on your own. It's just going on your hard drive. Just do it. And what are you doing to keep yourself physically energized during this? And uh, personally, what are you doing to not let the fear seep in? Because you are really good at this. So obviously you're launching a new program. But I do think that the physical aspect of this is crucial too. Do you agree or disagree? No, I totally agree. And, you know, if we were having this conversation a week ago, which was, I think it was a week ago today, was my day of uh, feeling both doom and gloom because I saw, as you had pointed out to me, many of the cards that were going to get turned over. And I looked at this game and I said, this is not a game I am electing for all of us to have to play. Right. How, right. how am I going to you know, look at that? And then you say, well, it wasn't my choice. I can't opt out. What should my response be? And the late Zig Ziglar taught me the difference between response and react. If you go to the doctor after getting some medicine and she says yes. you're having a reaction, that's bad. If she says you're responding, that's good. So how do we choose to respond? So the specifics in my case are, I went for two, three walks yesterday of a half an hour each. My dog is thrilled. Um, and I'm working out every single day on my own because the physical part of your body has no idea what's going on in the real world. It's just responding to being put to use. And I'm also aware that food has been weaponized by the big food companies and marketed by the big food companies yes. into a form of self-medication. And if you find that eating differently helps you, then please do. But I have not found that an entire bag of potato chips has much of value for me in terms of my long-term mental health. So I am known by those who love me for being rigid and persistent in how I eat, and I'm not changing it. Yeah, well, and it, it, it makes you even more lovable, even as we can't quite fathom how you do it to the sort of level that 
you do it, but it's a great, it's a great example. I too have, you know, I've been, I'm seven, I haven't talked about this in the podcast, but I'm seven weeks into no flour, no sugar. I've lost about 20 pounds and um, I refuse to gain what my sister has taken a calling the COVID-19. Right. Like the freshman, like exactly. the freshman 20. So I'm uh, trying hard to think about it. I want to, I want to talk about something that's less just about, uh, about just this, only this, this instant in time, but related to it, which is, and it's going to be challenging, I think, to talk about, which is, uh, as you just indicated, about six weeks ago, I knew with surety that we were going to be here. And it was the strangest disconnect for me um, because I'm used to sometimes going into panic mode about things that I don't have to really worry about. But this time I knew what was going to happen. And I did all the reading and I made myself breathe through it and I became aware of it. And the knowledge of it then was kind of worse than knowing it and sitting in it, sitting in it now. And uh, I guess I want to talk a little bit about how when we catastrophize things, we make them worse, but how we can make them useful. So I did take steps like I, I did, I didn't buy all the toilet paper in the store but I did buy some canned food. I did lay in some stuff. I did figure out how we could get out of the city. So, and you and I talked about all this stuff then. Can, can you talk a little bit about how you've learned to recognize the real from the fear and how you've learned to take action uh, versus becoming uh, paralyzed by it? Okay, so let's start with Siegel and Schuster and the Jungian uh, fear that we have of not taking action when we should have. So when uh, Superman's dad, not played by Marlon Brando, knew that Krypton was in danger, he swaddled his infant in a rocket ship and sent him off to safety. And this resonates with us. I think it resonates with us even more than Bambi's mother getting shot. And the reason it resonates with us is that we all live with this regret in advance that we could have, should have, might have known something. And that if we had only known it and taken action, then everything would be okay. And I think that lots of apocalyptic or breaking news or anything in between in our culture is driven by this deep-seated belief we have that maybe we could get someone or ourselves to safety. And the problem, as people like to say, is that economists have successfully pointed out 18 of the last three recessions because you can't get it right. You can't pick stocks like a magician and you can't figure out when it's smart to leave town and when it's not. And that You and I grew up, I'm a little older than you, but you and I grew up Berlin blockade, Cuban missile crisis, Vietnam War, uh, uh, this virus, that disease, HIV, 9-11. What was the right thing to do, right? What was the right call 
to make. And it's easy to keep track of money. Like, should you have bought real estate in Tribeca right after 9-11 or not? But it's also more important to keep track of humanity. Should you have retreated to a mountaintop and opted out of the world because we were clearly in the middle of a giant uh, religious apocalypse that would never end or not? And I think that if you're wrong enough times, you can come to the conclusion that you can't be sure to be right. And that what you can do instead is bet on two things, which we've touched on, resilience and generosity. Resilience means you get to play again tomorrow, but that's all you're going to get. You're not going to get to make the problem go away. You can't prep your way into a perfect life. And then the other one is generosity, which is who can I teach? Who can I connect? Who can I lead? And the beauty of focusing on that is that scales to infinity. There's always more of that to do. And then you don't need the rest of the world to be the way you hope it will be. You simply need a small group because it's never going to be a billion people. If you thought that six weeks ago you could have told the world and they would have done something, you would have done it. But you know you couldn't have. Even with all of the millions of people who listen to you, you couldn't have because it's insufficient. Human nature will not be changed by one voice. Even Superman's dad couldn't do it. You're right. Even Superman's dad couldn't, couldn't do it. What I thought I could do and what I did do was I collected the smartest voices on coronavirus. I think five weeks ago, I started that list on Twitter where I have coronavirus experts list. I started broadcasting it the best I could. Um, I started trying to talk to my smartest friends, including you, uh, Tim Ferriss, my friend David, about David Levine, about what this all might uh, mean. Uh, I started trying to ask medical experts that I knew. I started reaching out to people like Esther Chu, uh, doctors, and I, and as you, by the way, Seth, in your, although you're not a town crier, you have this huge microphone. Your blog is among the most read in the world on a daily basis, and it's read by incredibly influential people. And at a certain point, you did start in the general way that you do because you don't want to alarm people. You did start writing um, about this stuff. But, but you know, as, a, an, as an American Jewish person, I, I am, even though I'm an atheist, I'm not going to speak for you, uh, but, uh, but I identify in that way. The legacy of the, the Germany and the people who were willing to sacrifice everything to leave does resonate for me. And it forces me to ask myself that question all the time that you just raised, which is when do you push the emergency button and when do you not? And it's, uh, it's challenging, I think, to solve that equation. Yeah, I don't think it can be solved. And so if we can't make everything okay and we can't get everything back to normal, where does resilience lie? Because if you want to start projecting the future, this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And the last line is always the same. And then you die. And so you can't keep going after all the thises hoping to postpone the last one forever. What you can do is say, can I be a resilient 
contribution. Because here's the thing about the economy we live in now. The economy for a hundred years was an economy of Adam Smith and scarcity. Economics is all about scarcity. If a baseball card is everywhere, the baseball card isn't worth anything. And if there's only yes. one Honus Wagner baseball card and people want it, it's worth more. But in an economy that's more and more based on connection and culture and less on, I have something you don't have, then yeah. the mindset is, how do we not look at this through scarcity? I got something before other people did, or I got out. But how do we look at it through a sense of abundance in the sense that if we all have it, we all have it? How do we create an environment of connection of uh, with a lot less hatred and a lot more openness? Because yes. the only thing that's going to come from are individuals. It will never come from the top down. It will never be the official policy. But if enough people model it, then the systems come around oh, you're so right. and follow. Well, you're so right because, uh, you know, uh, I do have this 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 feeling, and it's something that Dave and I did put into the show in, in, in Bobby Axelrod's mouth when he's talking to his uh, employees in the end of season two. He says, um, in the great expanse of time, we're already dead. And in keeping that in mind, it, it makes me want to be so present now and connected and engaged with people and engaged with what people are thinking. And so what I thought of just now as you were talking was how much I want to hear from you listening, how much I want to hear the way in which people are processing this moment, the way in which they're dealing with it, the ways in which they're contributing. And, and that makes me think about your upcoming book, which I know we don't want to talk about now, but uh, just how much we need, can you talk a little bit about how much we need people to be willing to risk sharing what they're seeing through their eyes right now? Okay, so you're opening the door for a really important part of this conversation, which is this. When there were three TV networks, it was true that a whole bunch of voices and points of view were ignored. And they were ignored because of the dynamic of scarcity in only three TV networks, plus a desire to stay to the middle. But then we gave everyone a microphone. And here's the upside. The upside is, if you have something to say, you can say it. Here's the downside. People who shouldn't even have a driver's license also have a <laughs> microphone. Yes. And if you are listening to those people, you are making a really significant mistake. Just because someone shows up in your feed or your email box doesn't mean you need to pay attention. You only get to pay attention to a finite number of voices because you are paying with something really valuable, attention. And every day it gets reset, but every day you only have a day's worth of it. And so choosing who to listen to and choosing who to speak to is really important. There are people who need panic around them to make their panic feel more viable. And you don't need to be around those people because it is not your job to make them feel good in their panic. 
You don't need to be around people who are getting satisfaction out of being a troll, who are getting satisfaction out of playing tennis with somebody in the comments fields. You don't have to do that. Your job is not to contribute to everyone. It's to contribute to someone or maybe a few someones. But you have to choose those people wisely because they will make a difference in what you do next. And I think you also should think, maybe people should also think about the way in which they want to communicate what they're seeing and feeling right now. Because the people you're talking about who shouldn't have a driver's license, they're actually not trying to do the thing you talk about, uh, come with a generous spirit and express what only they see through their eyes in the sort of Ralph Emerson way of uh, uh, if you speak your uh, your private scary thought, you have the chance to actually connect with other people because they will recognize the the truth of it. And and I think this kind of moment actually sets up better than almost any other for people to take the chance of revealing themselves in a real way and revealing their inner lives in a, in a real way. I think that that's true. I also think that it's a chance to develop a new practice here, a new way of being in the world. Yes. So let's say you, why not do it? You got time. Why not you write up in 10 paragraphs, 2019, not your obituary, but how you spent 2019, 10 paragraphs. Okay. Now, what are the 10 paragraphs about 2020? And how many of the 10 paragraphs about 2020 will be about the next two weeks? Because if you think that all of 2020, never mind all of your life, but all of 2020 is about the next two weeks, well, then that's pretty fraught. My hunch is that in December, this month will get some mention, but it's not going to be the narrative of your entire year. And it's certainly not the narrative of the next decade. We get to make choices about how we will walk through the world. We get to make that choice every day. But if disruption helps you catch your breath and say, who am I going to be? If they're going to publish everything I'm going to tweet over the next two weeks, if they're going to publish everything I'm going to type in Slack over the next two weeks, what do I want to do for posterity? Because it's way easier to take the long view if you're doing that than if you're day trading on however you're feeling in the next four minutes. Oh, uh, that's great. That's a great post from you. Don't day trade your feelings. Uh, I would. That's really brilliant, Seth. That connection of day trading and sort of emotional coherence versus emotional pellets and trying to just fire off and grapple with emotional pellets. If you if you think about it, instead of it's a great metaphor. This his this hysterical sort of day trading mindset where every tweet, every word you hear someone say on MSNBC or on Fox triggers you buying and selling your sort of em emotional strength versus uh, deciding carefully what you want to bank on you being, what you want to bet on and holding that and stoking that and having faith in that, that's a much stronger place to come from right now. Uh, and in fact, it's worth the whole podcast to just have that metaphor in our heads as we go through this, which is we can go through this, 
like someone with 40 screens in a basement trying to trade the foreign markets all night, the Asian markets all night long and the U.S. markets all day long and their emotional uh, well-being changes a thousand times a minute versus this metaphor of the idea of Warren Buffett. Forget actual Warren Buffett. I'm not I've, I have no idea about the actual Warren Buffett, but the myth of Warren Buffett, uh, you know, getting up, calmly looking, deciding what he's going to hold, holding it and relaxing into what that means. It's a much sort of stronger place to come from. And it protects uh, it protects you from the swings of uh, the endorphins. So thank you for that. That's really great. I'm try- have you used that before? Have you used that day trading thing? Have you blogged about it? Uh, maybe seven years ago. I, I don't want to change the focus on this window to look it up because I might break something. But uh, <laughs> but if you haven't, you got to you got to do it. So well, good. I, it, that's good. When you like something, I know I'm onto it. Um, I want to talk <laughs> yeah, about keep going. I want to talk about systems for just a minute. Um, you know what we don't see is Wolf Blitzer breaking news. One. Thousand seventeen-year-olds started smoking in the last two hours. Every one of them is going to either die from it or have their health impacted over the rest of their life. That has never right. once been breaking news, because it is built into the system that we have stores that sell it and marketers that promote it and a culture that rewards it and on and on. So when we think about how are we going to change? our world, whatever world you define as our world, for the better, it is almost always with systemic change, with messing with the foundations of the system than it is with first aid. That first aid is vitally important. And if I need CPR, I hope someone gives it to me. But CPR is not the way to save the world. The way to save the world is to change how people eat because that's a systemic change. And, you know, you and I have talked about various uh, approaches to philanthropy and stuff. And I've been working with Acumen for a really long time. And Acumen invests in people who are building organizations that change a system in a country where people have very little in the in way of reserve. So David Elias figures out how to bring a chicken from France to Ethiopia a chicken that doesn't lay one egg a week, which is what a typical Ethiopian chicken lays, but lays six eggs a week. And if you go to farmers who have small little plots of land and they're able to replace, back to the chicken soup idea, a one egg chicken with a six egg chicken, it doubles the protein intake of their kids, doubles it. Now, you bring one chicken to Ethiopia, that's a good thing to do. But Ethio Chicken sells a million baby chicks every single day. That's systemic change. And it didn't take a week or a month or a year, and it has never been covered by Wolf Blitzer because it doesn't line up with the media narrative of how do we put people on edge so we can get their attention. But over time, and time is all we've got to work with, we're going to be able to put systems in place to create more resilient healthcare put systems in place to make sure that we have ways to test and support medical workers and everything else. Systemic change, whether it's in education or poverty or healthcare, 
that's something that we need to be way more focused on. And if you need to change your media filters so that that's what you're seeing, that's what you're taking yeah. care of, that is worth this crisis. Well, that's beautifully said. And um, I'm going to bring this to a close soon. I want to say, I do want to mention on this podcast that uh, a couple things I'm doing to feel connected uh, on Twitter. One is every day I'm going to be posting my uh, a picture of me with my Royale. As you know, the Royale is what I've named the first cup of coffee of the day. Mm-hmm. That's for you. It can be the first herbal coffee of the day. But I've <laughs> noted, I, I asked the first herbal tea of the day, but I've asked people to post pictures of their Royales and people have been doing it all day. And so everybody, it's one of those Zoom-like things where we're all just going to sort of tip our coffee cup to each other first thing in the morning. So if you're listening to this tomorrow morning, I want you to post your Royale uh, and I'll post mine and we can all do that together. Uh, I also, uh, my son Sammy has put together uh, a newsletter that he's doing every day, partially because your son Alex Godin challenged him to do it every day. I don't know that was originally your plan, but Alex said you got to do it every day. And um, it's quarantine uh, cuisine where he's interviewing chefs about what we all should be cooking during this time. And where, I want to hear your idea. Where do we find this uh, newsletter? And is it spelled cuisine with a Q? I think it isn't, though. I'm going to tell him you said that it, it should be. If you go to Sammy Koppelman uh, on Twitter, you'll see people are kind of freaking out about this newsletter. He's doing a, a great job with it. And um, Seth's blog, Seth, your blog, which is on it. The reason I'm speaking quickly to wrap this up is that this is the first time I've done this podcast this way and i see that my i'm having a uh an airpod battery crisis and oh no I'm gonna, oh yeah i'm as soon i'm gonna lose the ability to have this conversation so <laughs> uh you people should go to seth Godin's uh blog uh, they should find seth he's not on twitter really but his blog is there you can interact with his best thoughts you should go to akimbo and see all the incredible things that seth's doing there seth can you just say where people can find you Seth.blog, S-E-T-H-S.blog, and all the workshops and the free co-working are at akimbo.com. That's A-K-I-M-B-O.com. And my podcast is there as well. And you can find me at themomentbk at gmail.com. So it's themomentbk at gmail.com or at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. I really want to be here for people during this time. As Seth said, it. it's not like I can Uh, I think it's productive for us to just be tweeting back and forth all day, but um, I do want to be here if I can help in any way. And Seth, as always, thank you for your friendship, your guidance, and um, your steadfast determination not to day trade away your uh, or our emotional sanity during this time. Thank you, Brian. Big hugs to everybody in the family, and I look forward to seeing you in real life really soon. 